Hi, I'm Andy Bush, and you're listening to Through the Decades, a podcast that takes a nostalgic trip down memory lane with some of my favourite people. Each week, my guest and I will be starting in the 60s before going to the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, 10s, and back to the present day as they share their stories of how each decade has shaped their lives and made them what they are today. joined by dancer, choreographer, conductor, theatre director and all-round good guy, Craig Revel-Horwood. Oh, thank you. What a lovely introduction. Uh, Craig, quick question before we get going. Are you good at looking back or are you always on to the next thing? No, I think the past teaches about the future. You know, and I think it's really interesting to always go back to know what you did in order to then hopefully make a better future for yourself. Mr Miyagi, in well, many we ways. we try, you know, that some people don't. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Well, listen, let's begin our journey through time. We're going to start in the 1960s, the era of our grandparents, black and white photos, great aunts, uncles that you may or may not have met. You were born in, is it Ballarat in Australia? Yes, Ballarat, in Ballarat. the middle of Victoria, in Australia. What is your earliest childhood memory then, Craig? Uh, I think the earliest childhood memory would be the flight to England. <laughs> That's the first thing you remember. Yeah, well, it was when I was three, so I started school over here and my dad was in the navy so he had to come and do officer training in Portsmouth and we lived in a place called Fairham so I went to Fairham primary school and I just remember things like plimsolls and hot lunches and things like that and a really <laughs> poncy little school outfit with a hat and a blazer and all the, all the stuff that you would never wear in Australia. So were you like a military kid? Was that what you called? Yeah, military kid, naval kid, yeah, naval, naval brat. And then of course after that uh, going back to Australia and then living the rest of my life out there until 23. I mean, I've always got a lot of respect for people who are military kids or whatever, because you end up moving around a little bit. You have to kind of... Every be, two years. Is that a stricter upbringing, would you say, than, say, like a, a childhood that doesn't have that in its past? Yeah, I think you, you learn how to read a 24-hour clock before <laughs> any other thing. That's why I could never understand So time. breakfast was like, oh, 800 That's hours the, yeah. and stuff like that. No, 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 it really was. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll see you at 1,400 hours. It was bizarre, you know. And then and my dad would always say... Lash up and stow, lash up and stow. So I learned all of these ridiculous things to get us all out of bed. Polished boots? Whistles. Yeah, no, I had to do all the polishing Did of the you? boots and they had to be military standard. I mean, it was, like, unbelievable. There's a real skill to polishing well, you boots, you how to use Brasso a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell us about your grandparents. What, what are your first memories of your grandparents? Uh... Well, my grandfather on my mother's side died very, very early, before I was three. And uh, But my other memories of my grandfather on my father's side, Revel Horwood, uh, who I've taken the name of as well, because uh, he was Revel Horwood. My dad was Philip Revel Horwood, and I'm Craig Revel Horwood, of course. It's not double-barreled, it's just a middle name mm-hmm. and his first name. Uh, he used to be... Uh, act as a clown and he used to entertain you know do kids parties and things like that dress up all the time like actual clown as an actual clown yeah and also uh, he used to ride a penny farthing through the streets as well (laughs) bizarrely I mean he was out there a real weirdo He's all self-taught. Night early. school. Yeah, you know, I don't think he ever went to school, to be honest. He was a brickie. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Just did the clowning on the Just side. Just did the clowning and magic, and they pretended they could read minds, and I believed them. But know. what an amazing, like, thing <laughs> it's for... a double act. I said, oh, I really want to learn how to read minds, and this was with my grandmother. And then she pretended to teach me that I had to put my hands on, my, on people's temples <laughs> and just count the pulses. Oh, wow. But, 
that's where a pulse is naturally anyway. But you're just so there's science, make, isn't it? Making it up, basically. But you know, it's a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a lost art sometimes now with grandparents. The whole, mm. you know, I remember with my granddad from Liverpool making little paper boats or paper hats or pulling coins from people's ears and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. All Grandparent that sort of tricks, all that kind of stuff. Do yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? exactly. But it, it did incite me to want to learn the egg cup trick, and I did. And then the first time I did it, I knocked the whole thing over, and everyone saw the egg underneath the egg. <laughs> so a career of magic never beckons. Yeah, yeah, my hands were a bit shaky. <laughs> even back then. Let's get a song on from the 1960s then, uh, Craig, that's got a, a special place in your heart. Well, it's called Shatem. <laughs> I don't know why I like it. I was a little kid and we used to put on, my sisters and I thought it was so funny and naughty. Yeah. Uh, we had no idea. I mean, it's all in French, for goodness sakes. I mean, whatever possessed us, but it was a, it was a single and we used to put it on this record player and we always <laughs> laughed hilariously and hysterically to it. We couldn't wait to put it on. I'm sure we weren't allowed to be listening to it, but that is clearly in my mind. Jetem, written by Serge Gainsbourg, performed by Jane Birkin and Serge Gainsbourg and the release by Fontana. I would read the translated lyrics, but I think it's probably best to leave them there. And you know how bad my GCSE French was. Now, Craig, let's move from the black and white of the 1960s and into the overexposure of the colour of the 1970s. Let's talk about your parents. What were they called and how did they meet? My father was called Philip Revel Horwood. He was in the Navy and my mother still is. Beverly Horwood and they met in my hometown of Ballarat they mm -hmm. were both living there well my mum was living in Caniva at the time which is uh, a ghost town now she was a bit of a tap dancer okay. and by all accounts my father was not bad at dancing you know to always go out and dance I mean in the 50s that's all you could do to meet anyone yeah and so they met at a function and then got together. They were very young. I mean, 18, 19, and then mum had the first baby at 20, so she was quite a young mum. But I think in that, that day, that was what was expected. But, of course, my father was away for 10 months of the year, and we were just moving about every two years. So once she started having the family, and I'm one of five kids, I've got three sisters and a brother, yeah. and there's one elder sister, and then I'm the eldest son. Is so, it good being in a big family? Because you've got to kind of fight for your, for your right to be heard yeah, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's why we eat really fast. I said that about my, my other half, Katie. She's from a big family, and if yeah. there's anything lying around, she has it straight away. Yeah, so, so your brother's it. not going to nick it now, Katie. It's fine. Yeah, no, no, it's so true. I mean, we <laughs> eat like gannets. I still do to this very day. We all do. I mean, we hoover our plates, because if you don't, you've got to be the first to finish to get the seconds. Yes. You know, that's the horror, <laughs> isn't it? So it's a race. A real race against time, and how much you can shovel in quickly. I love it. I love, and, and you're still on good relationship with your, your brothers and sisters and stuff now? Oh, yeah, really good relationship with them all actually really good yeah it's been fantastic although all my family still live in australia it's always my intention to go back over a year but this year and last year was not possible due to covid obviously so i'm hoping that next year i can go i normally go february march april yeah but this year i filled it with of course uh touring you know fantastic <laughs> make some money darling and then <laughs> i'll be able to go uh at least not you know cattle class i'll be able to go business class yeah i bet well listen music and musicality is such an important part of what you do what what music do you remember in the house when you were a kid in this kind of era? My mum, Neil Diamond. Oh, wow. That was a go-to for her. That's all we ever heard, Hot August Night. 
And then I thought, oh no, mum's on one, she's having a glass of wine and listening to Neil Diamond now. This is like, it's going to end in tears. What, what do you listen to now if you have a glass of wine and listen and put a record on? What's the kind of thing do you listen to? Well, I try and keep up, you know, with the kids. I, <laughs> I literally now just put Hot Hits UK on. <laughs> so I know actually what's going on and what music's out there. Otherwise I'd be just listening to old things, you know, like Westlife, and I can't be doing that for the rest of my life, darling. I don't want to be one of those people. Yeah. So I try and keep up. So is there someone in your life in your past that kind of in- opened the door to a certain new area of music to you? You know, sometimes you get someone in life that will listen to this, you might like this. Is there anyone like that for you? Yeah, there was my dance teacher. She introduced me to Jim Steinman in that way. My first ever... Uh, routine that I danced on stage and then the Stedford was um, Jim Steinman uh, I'm a lover not a dancer I'm a lover not a dancer it's one of that you know it was, I thought what's this it's like heavy heavy well it sounded like metal to me heavy <laughs> <laughs> metal back then yeah but uh, it was rock wasn't it of course Bad Out of Hell was a huge big influence on my life I loved Meatloaf and just loved Jim Steinman together you know is there a song from the 70s uh, then Craig you'd like to put forward as your track of the decade and do tell us why I sort of want to go with something from Saturday Night Fever I think because that sort of made me want to dance and made it John Travolta made it cool to dance it was when I saw him disco dancing in the thing and it was like totally cool to be like that and be a boy and dance and it was okay From the opening credits of Saturday Night Fever as John Travolta struts through the streets of New York City. I love the high falsetto style that the Bee Gees have had ever since Jive Talking was released in 75. That song right there was written and performed by the Bee Gees and released via RSO. And next we jump into the 80s, VHS, Betamax, Pepsi adverts, that kind of thing. What was it like being uh, a teenager in 1980s Australia then? I loved the 80s. I loved shoulder pad. I loved big hair. I loved Dynasty, Joan Collins, all of that stuff. I mean, you know, I became a drag queen in the 80s. I loved that too. <laughs> yeah. I love Boy George, Come a Chameleon was the song where I thought, wow. That's amazing. A guy wearing makeup, you know, and he actually came out to Australia. Boy George came out to Australia to do interviews and upset everybody. So, I mean, what was it imagine... like then in, in in Australia in that in that era? What was the kind of mentality? Well, homophobic, most certainly, and men do not wear any form of makeup and looking like a girl. That was ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you get your head bashed in for that sort of thing. I mean, especially in my hometown of Ballarat. Yeah. You know, it's country, and you just could never even consider walking down the street like that. So is it like a macho thing? Is it like yeah. a, a strange sense of manhood yeah, and what being a man is? Billy Elliot, really. It's that, you know, where you're just going to get teased, you know, bashed up for being even slightly effeminate. So it was a tough environment to live in, and especially going from the movement from the 70s into the 80s. I mean, Boy George helped that a little bit. Yeah. So did um, bands like Human League, for instance, you know, and 80s sort of punk, you know. It was great. I loved it. It was, it was the first time I thought, wow, this is amazing. You can actually be transmographical in a way you know you can change your form to yep. however suits you and because I was dancing at the time and turning 18 and listening as I say to Human League and to um, Boy George and 
all of those wonderful bands. You know, Adamant was out there with makeup on as well and making that cool. Were there any Australian ones? Anyone in Australia that was doing that? Like a, a band from there that was doing that Not kind of thing? that I can recall. No, this wave of all of that came from London. It was amazing. And then it started influencing Australian, you know, Australia's music scene as well. But uh, I left, of course, Australia in the 80s. Yep. So uh, my time was sort of as a teenager and then going into my early 20s was up because I needed to move around the world to dance. You know, I just knew I had to get out of Australia at that point and move on and all of those sort of things. I mean, I did the first ever Kentucky Nuggets ad, yeah. which was amazing. Yeah, and yeah. that was when Kentucky Nuggets first appeared on the scene. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember beat dancing in that, you know, and feeding my girlfriend, yeah. like, loads of nuggets. <laughs> Bizarrely. But that always makes me laugh, because yeah. actually nuggets didn't exist back then. And now they're, they're like, a mainstay, aren't they? Everyone's but, having nuggets these days. <laughs> so do you think Australia now, if you look at Australia now, has it come a long way, do you think, in terms of its yeah, approach it stuff? it most certainly has. And Boy George, I think, helped pave the way for that, only because he was going on national television and defending the makeup wearing and saying that you can be straight, gay or otherwise, it doesn't matter. And he made that more acceptable. He was very good at speaking in interviews and being very opinionated. Yeah. And I just totally woke me up, actually. And I went, I can actually be anything I want to be. Yeah, that's and amazing. And it gave me that confidence. Yeah. You know, and uh, and then I got in a show called West Side Story and then my life as a dancer had truly begun. So in terms of a song from the 80s then, Craig, what would you go for? Well, I would go for Boy George, I think, because he's the biggest influence on my life. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come We had naughty lyrics to that as well. Oh, really? Yeah, I can't say them. An alternative version. <laughs> yeah, we've got no, yeah, yeah, there was an alternative version. That's an entirely you can different tell podcast. By my eyes, darling. I can't. I'd love to say it, but I can't. Come a Chameleon, written by Culture Club, George O'Dowd, John Moss, Phil Pickett and Roy Hay. Performed by Culture Club and released by Virgin. Well, let's move into the 90s then, Craig. A, uh, a decade of decadence and partying and optimism and all that kind of stuff as well. As you mentioned earlier when you moved from Australia to the UK, it was in 89, is that correct? Yeah, in 1988 I moved to Paris and then came to London in 89. April Fool's Day, I recall it well, because <laughs> I only had £1,000 in my back pocket. And then I didn't know how to use the tube and I was too scared to go on it because I didn't know what I was doing. Oh, wow. And I had five bits of floral luggage that that didn't have any <laughs> wheels because suitcases back in the day didn't have wheels. So uh, I put them all in a black cab and it cost me 60 quid of my £1,000 to get to the destination I was going wow. to in Crouch End, mind you. Oh, wow. I've yeah. lived in Crouch End for a few years, yeah, so that's where you Annie started Lennox, off. Darling, she was there as well. And she was a big influence, actually, speaking of music. I loved her as well. Yeah, so uh, that sort of got me into London and then I got into Cats and then Miss Saigon. So, we'd, like, your dad was on the move the whole time. I guess it was almost yeah, in your DNA. He, to... Well, no, what happened was he had retired by then through alcoholism, which is quite sad, and then eventually died of alcoholism. Oh, sorry. Uh, 
but you know that's sort of I mean it does shape us all doesn't it you know in a way it was one of those uh, relationships where it was quite abusive you know and right. he, he wasn't really that supportive of me being a dancer but then he came to see me in a show called Lacage of Fault and then started buying into the whole drag thing and oh wow and, so a real turnaround oh yeah then fell in love with it and then he Amazing. was just watching every single show then he wanted to meet all my drag friends he wanted to meet this he wanted to meet so, that amazing. he wanted to meet the sex changes I mean, it was amazing really yeah a full sort of turnaround it's such a vibrant but, thing though isn't it you know yeah. so what do you think do you make of like RuPaul's Drag Race has kind of brought it to such a wider well, audience I think it's great you know because drag's been around for centuries yeah. I mean Shakespeare let's face it <laughs> Women weren't allowed on the stage. Was that <laughs> men true. played women the yeah. entire time? So it's no big deal. <laughs> Although it became a big deal, and now it's not. RuPaul's Drag Race is just going back to Shakespearean times, really. Yeah, it's just being televised with a lot more modern makeup. Did you make your own outfits and stuff like? Because one thing I sometimes feel is that it, it's slightly going away in, in RuPaul's Drag Race is you don't you, they don't make their own kit as much as maybe they used to. Do That's you know what probably I mean? a good idea. Really. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, let's face it, not every. Not every boy out there that has a desire to be a drag queen is a seamstress. Yeah, true. You know, and you've got to be good. So I've made two dresses myself in my whole career. Really? And they were just very easy jersey ones with, uh, you know, one seam to sew <laughs> and an overlocker. So I have done that. But I would not like to make anything tailored at all. But, um, yeah, no, I think it's great. I think RuPaul's Drag Race is a fantastic sort of thing. Kids love it. There's yep. colour, there's movement. It means they can do whatever they like you know as well when they grow up and think it's a much better time of life for children and teenagers you know to be accepted for who they want but we cannot forget that in the 80s we were fighting yeah you know as gay men and women to you know change the world you know vision especially in the 80s when aids was at its peak all our friends were dying you know and that put a big dampener on gay culture and music it affected everything you know they were burning Donna Summer's records. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, she was made famous by the gay community in that way, you know, and then they turned on her. Yeah. So uh, the 80s was huge, really, for me. And then coming into the 90s, of course, I was in Miss Saigon and living a London life. So your music tastes change. You know, they moved from... Uh, Jimmy Barnes in Australia and John Farnham. Yeah. You know, to the pop culture here. Bit of a culture highly, shock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock, actually. <laughs> but it's a hard career, isn't it? It's a tough... It's, you work big time with dancing and everything like that as well. It's not... Would you say it's not glamorous? It's not as glamorous as some people think no, it is. No, it's not. You've got to drag yourself out for class every morning, then you've got to go and do two shows a day, or, you know, you're, dancing is like being a sportsman, and it runs out. You know, so I was sort of slightly conscious of that, because because in the early 90s, I had to start thinking about my future, making a decision on what's going to happen when I turn 30. You know, and, and is, it, is it a question of like, you know, it's about sports people and stuff. Is it like injuries? You get injuries and Yeah, and, your and bones stuff. run out of juice, darling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they start grating against one another, especially if you've abused them all your life. You know, yeah. I was doing high kicks, can-cans and splits for a long time, and I did them drunk at parties <laughs> as well. <laughs> Not warmed up, which didn't help, you know, but still. I mean, that stuff happens, doesn't it? 
But your body does run out and you do have to think, you know, and certainly in the 90s, I was thinking, you know, five years, in five years, I need to really start thinking about a future for myself. And it was the 90s for me that made me think about my future of being a director choreographer rather than a performer. So it was, the 90s was a big deal for me. Let's think of a song then from the 90s that you would like to, to put on right now and, and tell us why, what do you reckon? Oh yeah, Kylie Minogue, it's got to be, she broke through, darling, better the devil you know, not better the devil you know. That's what I keep saying. Hello, the brother, you know. <laughs> Written in just one hour and recorded and mixed in just three hours. That was Better the Devil You Know, and it was a dance floor filler in the 90s, written by the famous trio of Stock, Aitken and Waterman, and performed, of course, by the icon that is Kylie Minogue, released by PWL Records in 1990. On to the 2000s and the noughties, the celebrations for the millennium. Uh, this was the decade that started your involvement with Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. How did it come about and did you ever think it would go on to be as huge as it is? Well, to how it came about was I was directing and choreographing a show in the West End and the producers got hold of me and said they wanted to interview people or uh, screen test people that weren't necessarily Borum and Latin, that were from the West End world, you know, musical theatre, ballet, just so there was a different of opinion and I say that sounds awful I said I'm not interested (laughs) at all because it's going to be car crash television (laughs) because celebrities will never be able to dance well enough in three weeks that you're offering you know when I've taken all my life to learn to dance and you're expecting them to do it in three weeks it's going to be awful (laughs) and I said no then my manager said Listen, just give it another chance. So he put me in a taxi, took me up to the BBC studios. I looked at a monitor, made some comments about... uh, They said, oh, can you be a bit more concise? And I said, you know, in three words, just sum up the dance in three words after saying how tragic the whole thing was. I said, yeah, I can, actually. Dull, dull, dull. (laughs) And that were the first three words out of my gob (laughs) on the very first show back in May 2004. And the rest is history. Yeah, 60 countries worldwide, Guinness Book of Records for the most produced format in the world. Amazing. Unbelievable. And I gave it three weeks for the top. <laughs> Len and I couldn't have been so wrong. <laughs> and so in your... And I'm still there. Well, and it's going, it's going from strength to strength. I mean, in your you know professional career when you were directing and choreographing, were you quite tough on the dancers then? I am. When I'm directing and choreographing, I have to be. Because my reputation's on the line. But the difference between Strictly and what I do for a real job is I get to choose the people that are dancing in my shows rather than <laughs> just being lumped with a celebrity who thinks they can do it. So, and you're almost like straddling there the kind of the tradition and then the future. Obviously, there's been, I wouldn't say turbulence in this series, but, uh, you know, same-sex couples dancing. Yeah. What's your take on that? Is it, is it being a good thing? I imagine some of the, the hardline traditionalists in, yeah. in dance have, have found it difficult a little bit to get their heads around it, do you think? Yeah, they not? did. Uh, James Jordan thought it was the most ridiculous thing he's ever heard of. Did and, he really? I didn't know and that. And it should never be belong in Borum Latin ever, ever, ever. But I mean, unfortunately, this men have been dancing with each other for centuries. You know, the Argentine tango was only ever danced by men. Yeah. Until women were introduced into it. So, uh, and that was hundreds of years ago. So the traditionalists don't really know their history in many ways, but some yeah, of these things. I think so. I think they get lost and caught up in a very small world, you know. And, you know, Strictly is not about that. It's about being all-inclusive. During the war, only women danced together because all the men were out getting shot, you know. So... <laughs> 
um, fighting for the country. Yeah. You know, so uh, that happened. Then men started dancing with men for entertainment anyway, you know, during the war, just to do it. And it's in our blood, I think. Yeah, so, but I've been waving the flag for same-sex couples for five years now. Yeah. And finally... It happened. You know, it happened in a lot of countries around the world before the BBC would get the courage, I think, to actually do it. And to be all-inclusive, you know, with the deaf community as well, I think is really, yeah. really important. And there's a lot of deaf dance companies out there that now have been highlighted. Yeah. Know, and people can go and see them now and feel included in their silent world, I think. And the more we take with that, the more inclusive we can be, I think, on the show, the better. Fantastic. Well, let's get a song on them from the noughties. Any any song that kind of stands out that you would like to play? Yeah, there is. It's Survivor off the Survivor album, Destiny's Child. And I'll tell you why. It's because it was my breakup song. Oh. I've been with my boyfriend for like 13 years, 12, 13 years. And um, he left me for a younger model and moved to New Zealand. And I needed to get over it. And I used that song <laughs> on the treadmill. <laughs> on the treadmill. And I never stopped playing it it was brilliant <laughs> i want to out of my life i'm so much better i was yeah. loving it empowering okay, you go girl yeah it was empowering <laughs> yeah so i want to hear that please Survivor, written by Beyonce, Anthony Dent and Matthew Knowles, performed by Destiny's Child, released via Columbia. Let's move on to the 2010s, the 2010s. You became a British citizen in this decade, 2011, is that correct? And how did it yeah. make you feel? Yeah, that is. The same the same year I got my driving licence for the first time ever. Really? <laughs> yeah, I was a bit of a late starter <laughs> when I came to that. I thought, I'll come. I'll do all the things that I really should be doing as a human being, like uh, becoming a British citizen, because I love the country so much. What did you have to do to, to become a British citizen? I had to do a really difficult written test. Oh, really? I mean, ridiculous. You had to know the comparative percentages of Sikhs to Jews in Haringey. Oh, my God. You have to... I mean, it's really off the charts. I'd stuff. fail. I, I, mean, I think I'd fail. Oh, yeah, most people would. I mean, I had to study... Not only I had to study all the things from uh, 2010 to... But all the new ones for 2011 because they were changing, you know, the census in 2011. Wow. So it was a new one. So I had to learn all of these different percentages. I oh, was doing this... my head in. And I thought, I cannot fail this. I have been on television. They know my face. <laughs> they don't need to see my passport. And I'll be sat there taking the test. <laughs> and if I fail, it'll be the most embarrassing thing of my life. I didn't fail, yes. thankfully. And what happens if you do fail, by the way? Where do you go from there? Oh, you have to restart the whole thing again. Oh, man. Booking, yeah, because it takes three months just to book yourself in for the test anyway. Well, why did you go for British citizenship? Uh, because though? I wanted to be responsible. You know, I was becoming more and more involved with you know, British charities and things like that. And I just thought, I actually want to spend the rest of my life here. I love it. I yeah. absolutely love it. You don't think and you'd I, ever go back to Australia then? I'd like going the back for three months of the year when it's summer. <laughs> yeah. And then I like coming back here. And I like the work here as well, you know, and I just like the people here. I think because I grew up here as an adult, you know, I came over when I was 23. And then from 23 now to 57, yeah. I have lived in London 
you know, and I just like the diversity of it. I like the open-mindedness. I like the fact that it's forward-thinking. I like the fact that people get involved and it's good. And I like the diversity. I like the fact that you cross the river and the accent changes. Yeah. Whereas in Australia, that doesn't happen. Everyone's <laughs> just the same. You know, it's, like, it's, it's funny, isn't it? But, I mean, you literally cross the river and you're in South. Yeah, so yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. you go to, you know, the East End and then yeah. it's, like, it's all geezer, boy, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, I mean, how many accents can you get in one city? Does your accent go uh, much more Australian when you go home to visit yeah, for a bit? Yeah, it does. Do you call it home, by the way, or what? Yeah, well, I call it home, home, but I mean, I still have this as my home, but yeah. uh, this has been more my home, obviously, you know, over the years. But yeah, I say, oh, I'm going home, but I don't really go home because I don't actually have a home there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I like it. And I wanted to have both as well, you know, and it was really cool. Well, let's, let's get a song from the 2010s then, a song that has a special place in your heart. What would you like to hear and why? Yeah, there is. I fell in love with Adele, actually, in 2010s, really. And... Someone Like You is something, you know, that I really love the lyrics of, you know, and I just love the fact that it's all slasherist, in a way. <laughs> you know, everything is tortured, you know, yeah. and It's soulful. quite melodramatic and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and all break-up relationships, and that, that sort of gives me hope. Never mind, I'll find someone like you Someone Like You, performed by Adele in her own words, the most articulate song she's written, alongside co-writer Dan Wilson. That was released in 2011 by XL Recordings. Right, and Craig, we arrive in the 2020s and what an amazing period in your career you're having at the moment. Uh, you are on fire. I saw you with some spectacular dance moves as Knickerbocker Glory in The Masked Dancer. Oh, yeah. That, w- <laughs> that was difficult. Dancing in it was horrendous because you can't breathe, you can't hear, you can't see. Yeah. So what else are you going to do uh, to make a dance and not be able to do turns? Yeah. Put a great big helmet on them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and a pair of six-inch stilettos and a corset. You know, I was up against it, really, as Knickerbocker Glory. Because yeah. a lot of people just had lycra, like Lewis Smith, for instance. Yeah. You know, just being a car wash. I thought, well, that's lovely and freeing to move in. You know, he yeah. wasn't wearing a corset with heels. I mean, it must have been so hot in there, though. Surely it, it was. was sweaty, Betty. It was <laughs> awful. I thought I was quite claustrophobic, and I was near fainting several times. You know, but that wouldn't that would be my biggest. You're not allowed to speak. You've just got to put your hand up. And just kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And wave about. <laughs> or, I, I'd be worried about sit down falling off stage or something like that, Joe. Yeah. I mean, would you ever worry about that kind of like a malfunction where you've fallen off or step off the wrong thing or bump into uh, something? Well, that was likely to happen, but thankfully I was protected. Uh, you know, if I did go close to the edge, then they changed the choreography. Because <laughs> I did one leap, I was trying to show off a bit, and then I nearly, I was literally an inch from death. Yeah, I bet. Or a broken ankle and hip, and they had both of them replaced anyway now, so it's like... What a way to go, though, blimey. What a way to go on national television. Yeah, why not do a bit of a Gemma Collins? And then, uh, you know, as we navigate our way through this decade, we've had the pandemic and all that kind of thing. Were you OK during lockdown? How did you cope with it all? I loved it. I was just finishing Dancing with the Stars, judging that in Australia, because I've done that in New Zealand and Australia for the last couple of years. And then we were in lockdown a month before Britain, so this was back in Oz. And then I got the last flight out without doing the final there, and then filmed the final from my front room 
for Australia, so we had to stay up for you know all night, every single night for a week. Oh, wow. Uh, so I was awake for it. <laughs> and then, of course, everything shut down here yep. in April, completely. And that means my one-man show had to go. Strictly Ballroom, the musical that I was directing that year. I mean, I had a really busy year set up, and I literally had a week off before I started the one-man show. And I was busy writing it, doing all that, and then suddenly it all went to pot and it was a beautiful summer yeah and i just thought well this is amazing i'm just going to take the time and i'm going to lie next to my pool yeah. and have this actually as a holiday and with that i then went and made some pina coladas yeah and i pretended <laughs> i was in spain or you know, on the beach somewhere because you probably never really stopped do no, you quite busy I, the longest i'd ever had in my house was two weeks yeah ever and that was in the seven years that I owned the manor house. So I just went, right, I'm going to lie here and I'm just going to pretend it's a holiday for three months. <laughs> so I did. But then I went on to six months. Then it went on to nine months. Then I went on to two years. And I was thinking, this, uh, I don't know, I better do something. <laughs> so I wrote a book. Oh, brilliant, OK. <laughs> and I started recording an album with my friend, like, because that was on a bucket list of things to do. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. A duets album. So we, we started that. And then we'll release it at some stage. But that was just something to do in lockdown, you know. And I did a lot more TV stuff. You know, I did a travelling show with Bruno around Britain, which I absolutely loved. That was hilarious. What's he like to, to travel around with? A these? nightmare. He's a live wire, Diva. isn't he? Diva. <laughs> Diva springs to mind. You know, hotels never right. Food's always wrong. How can he drive a Mini Cooper around? You yeah. know, he's used to luxury vehicles. He really, was like, what was he like? Yeah, outrageous, but funny. I mean, because we're talking cheese, and I think that's what was funny about it. And we've been best mates ever since yeah. we started in May 2004, you know, so it was really good fun. So it opened up a lot of opportunity that I would not necessarily have had if I was off doing the theatre stuff. Fantastic. Well, optimistic times. Uh, it's brilliant to have you on Craig Revel Horwood. Thank you so much for going through the decades. Let's conclude with your final song then for the present day. What would you like to hear? Yeah, well, there is one that I actually danced to, which I totally loved on The Masked Dancer, and it was Hands, Hair, Hips, Nails. It sort of sums me up. Fantastic. Channeling pure Knickerbocker glory. Craig Revel Horwood, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. My nails, hair, hips, heels, nails, hair, hips, heels, nails, hair, hips, heels, nails, hair, hips, heels. Ah! My nails, hair, hips, heels, nails, hair, hips, heels, nails, hair, hips, heels, nails, hair, hips, heels. Head, shoulders, nails, hair, hips, heels. Written by Kofi Owusu Afori, Jean Yves Ducore, Carl Sanat Magria, and Todrick Hall. Performed by Todrick Hall and self released. With over 48 million YouTube hits, my daughter loves that song too, and it constantly features on her TikTok, but that's fine. And there you have it, our trip through the decades is over. If you like any of the music you've heard, Absolute Radio is a station for you. From the Aberfield 1970s with Absolute Radio 70s, the synth pop 80s with Absolute 80s, and the Nashville riffs over on Absolute Radio Country, there's something for everyone. <laughs> 